0: Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Josie Silver, whose novel One Night on the Island has just been published. Josie, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. It's great to be here.
0: So I've read a lot of fiction that's been set on islands recently, Um, mysteries, literary fiction, romances. What makes an island a particularly good setting for a novel and and why did you want to set one there?
1: Okay, um, well, I went for the island in this case um, purely because, I think actually it was because I was writing it during the pandemic. And it gave me that, you know, that feeling of we were all kind of under isolation and kind of, you know, just, oh, how can I put it? Um, I think it was just, you know, you kind of closed in and you, you can't go anywhere. And the the borders of the island, especially with this book, because it's such a small island, um, it, it kind of contains the story and it contains the people um, originally, I was going to set it on a Scottish island, um, so I did quite a lot of research about the islands up there. Um, and then, funnily enough, someone else was writing a book that was based in a Scottish island, so my editor said, "Would you mind just moving it across? You know, just a little bit." So all of that research went out the window, and I had to kind of start again with research in Irish islands because, obviously, with the pandemic, I couldn't travel. Um, to do proper kind of underground research so it was reliant a lot on um, the internet and on speaking to people and watching millions of YouTube videos and you know to try and create because I didn't want to place it in a in a realistic in a real location you know that was kind of bound by the geography of the island and the you know the actual facts a bit so I'd sort of cherry-picked lots of bits of different islands that kind of suited the story to create one island that you know fit exactly the the needs of the story.
0: I think I think the only disadvantage for the reader of it being a fictional island is that we're all going to want to go there. <laughs>
1: Do you know, I've had so many people already write to me and say, where is this island? (laughs) And if if it was real, I would be there. I think think I've kind of created my perfect, my Mm -hmm. perfect way.
0: Your your biography describes you as, and I'm quoting here, an unabashed romantic who met her husband when she stepped on his foot on his 21st birthday. Now, let's set that story aside for just a second, although I'm sure it's a good one. Um, But how does being a romantic shape your approach to writing a novel
1: well first of all I'm going to confess something because that story has followed me through my entire (laughs) writing career and the genuine truth about that story is that my editor needed a snippet of information to write in the biography and she couldn't get me so she made it up so I did not step on my husband's foot much as I would love to say. And I've tried sometimes, I've tried to kind of gloss over that one and say, yeah, you know, but I think in truth, you know, I met him, it was a work romance, you know, it wasn't that kind of, you know, exciting and meet cute, as much as it would be lovely if it had been. Um so yes, let's set that story aside because it's not actually true. <laughs> um, but I am a massive romance fan. Um, whether it's on the screen, you know, I love all the all the classic kind of romantic movies, whether they're the old ones or the new ones. Um, and I've only ever read romance. Well, no, that's not true. I read all sorts of books, but romance is always the kind of genre that I go back to. You know, even from being a, a child, really, you know, with going with my gran and seeing her piles of Mills and Boone, you know, that was my original plan when I was <laughs> about 14. Was to try and write Mills and Boone. Um, and I've still got actually, I'd show you if I could put my hands on it, um, an old cassette that I sent for because I sent, they used to do a writing guide at Mills and Boone. So when I was about 13, 14, I sent away for this guide and they sent me a pamphlet of how to write romance and this little cassette. So I think it's always been just kind of my safe place, you know, whether it's on film or whether it's on paper.
0: So let's talk about your heroine Cleo for a minute. She's about to turn 30 and for yeah. her that's just this massively big deal. And I have to say as a reader who is a lot older than that um I look at her and I see I was like, "Oh, honey, just wait." <laughs> you know. Um but but on the other hand, you it's fascinating to me how you are able to talk a little bit about how you're able to establish her character by kind of having this this narrow focused Point of view, almost having these sort of blinders on about about the big bad world, if you were, um, what, what does that help you do in terms of creating her character?
1: Well, Cleo is, um, she's a, a girl who's kind of grown up as, as the coddled baby of her family um, and with these big dreams of being a writer. Um, and she went to London and, and she lost her dad very young. She, she didn't know her dad actually, he died when she was a baby so she's grown up with this kind of perfect romance that her parents had as as the backdrop of how she sees love should be um and she's got this unrealistic opinion i guess of how romance should should look because she's never actually seen it because her parents had this wonderful marriage that that finished you know really early um and her mom's never remarried so she's had this kind of impression of <clears throat> true romance and true love being this magical thing that she's never really witnessed, but that she's searching for. Um, and then she falls into this life of being a um, a columnist where she's constantly sort of the dating columnist. So she's constantly throwing herself into this idea of a new romance and trying to, you know, diff, different different dates. And it's never working out for her because I think she's probably got unrealistic expectations of of what she's looking for and she doesn't really know you know what it is that she's searching for she's got this um, yearning for something but she doesn't know what it is and i think going away to the island gives her that moment to pause and to just think well you know without all of that stuff that's going on around me and the life that i've built that i thought was the life that i needed what is it that i really want um, so the book kind of opens with her in that dilemma position of just about to turn 30, and throwing everything up in the air to see which bits of a life she really, really wants to yeah. keep.
0: Yeah. Um, we, I guess anybody who's read uh, very many romances or even seen a, a romantic film will know that um, the genre lies very much on on these tropes. Of, you, you mentioned the meat cute was a trope that we all sort of understand. and it's a really sort of rich part of, of the genre. but you I, I like the way you like take those tropes and you use some of them but then you subvert others. Can you talk a little bit about about that about sort of how you see the relationship of your work to to these tropes and how you know you use them as tools, but then also kind of turn them back on themselves sometimes. <laughs>
1: It. that's actually really interesting because that's how we all I've always started with my books is to take a trope and then think well what can I do with that that's going to kind of freshen it up and make it different or so with my with my first book um one day in December the trope was Love at First Sight mm-hmm. um which happens on on page one so it's no spoiler. Um, <laughs> and then it's kind of how to kind of play with that to make it feel fresh, I guess, because romance is one of those as a genre, I think people come to romance because they know that or they can expect either a happy ever-after ending or they can expect at least a hopeful happy for now kind of ending. Um and really I think the the, the the joy of writing romance is finding a way to get to that point that isn't predictable. Um so people expect these, you know. The, these genre these, these tropes to be there and look for them and enjoy them and we will buy based on the fact that that trope is there but I think everyone likes to see just something a little bit different put into it to make it feel like a different story even though you've read similar versions of what well, there are no new stories are there there is just new ways to tell them um so I'm always looking for that you know to try and include them but just change them up a little bit just so as the journey towards that safe, happy ending is unexpected and feels realistic.
0: Yeah. One of the tropes, and you kind of mentioned this briefly already, one of the tropes in romance is a heroine who's being misled or giving false expectations by the tropes of romance. Um, to, to what extent, if any, do you see this book as sort of, or parts of it as as being almost metafictional, sort of commenting backwards on the, the romance genre?
1: Yeah, I mean she's very aware, I think, of of that aspect of her life because she kind of lives this trope, if you like, because she's this, you know, it's quite a, a, a well-trod path within the romance community as the that she's a, you know, she's a journalist and she's been a a dating columnist. Um so she's very aware, I think, of her own position as a um a heroine in her own story, if you like. Yeah. Um and I, I think I think when she gets to the island and she finds Mac um, incumbent in the lodge, again, it's very much um, kind of romantic movie stuff, isn't it? But it's, it's you know it's very different, really, trying to find a way to make that feel less like something that's you know j- just done for um, for effect and more realistic.
0: So you mentioned Mac, and some, some of your chapters are told from the point of view of Cleo, who we've been talking about, um, yeah. who is who, who lives in London and has come to this island off the coast of Ireland. But others are told from the point of view of Mac, who is an American photographer who's been mm-hmm. double booked in this um, pretty isolated cottage that where they're, where they're staying. Um, they both seem like nice, reasonable people when we first meet them, and yet they can't seem to find a way to be nice and reasonable around one another. Can you talk about how the juxtaposition of two different characters allows you to sort of reveal more about them by sort of showing them from a different angle?
1: Yeah, I think they are actually quite opposite in their, in in where they are in their life. They're quite similar as people, but the position that they found themselves in at that point of their lives is very different. So she's been looking for love and he's trying to hang on to love. Um, so they're at opposite ends of their love stories, really, um, which makes her hopeful and him jaded, I think, when it comes to romance. So they're automatically at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and they are nice people. You know, they're both good people, and which is something I always try to do with my books, is kind of have no you know, sugary kind of sweet people, no villains, no heroes. They're all normal people who, sometimes they do amazing things. Sometimes they make terrible mistakes. And, you know, it just is, it's more realistic, I think.
0: Yeah. So I like the way that the, the novel is structured. We can throw back and point, forth between these two points of view, but also, um, Talk about how you do—you use these sort of subtitles at the beginning of each chapter head. This is something I did in my novel *Escaping Dreamland*, and it was so much fun to come up with them. Tell us—you know—how did how did you come up with these subtitles, and how did you use them to sort of guide both the reader and the structure of the novel?
1: Novel, yeah. Each of the subtitles is actually a line from lifted from. That particular chapter, um, so it was going through the chapter really and identifying what what's the main bit of that chapter, what's the point of it, or where's the humour sometimes, you know, because it, as well as romance, it's kind of romantic comedy, so you know it's finding the point of humour that's going to kind of when you read that title make you want to go through and continue to read that chapter.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cleo talks about the difference between her flat that she lives in in London and Otter Lodge, this very remote cabin on the on the island. And she calls yeah. it the difference between Jupiter and Mars. Um, yeah. How How do you reveal her character? What do we find out about her because of the fact that she's been, if you will, sort of taken out of her native environment?
1: Yeah, I think she's quite lost when she's in London. I think she's surrounded by so much noise and so much... You know, her work is busy and her life is busy and there's so many people, it's quite transient. Um, So she's allowed herself to get buried beneath that Um, and being taken out of that and put in a place that's so absolutely opposite. um, I, I think that gives her as a character the chance to grow and the chance to stop and to see, you know, what's missing.
0: And and um, you know from the from the point of view of the reader, I mean, we again, this is a trope we've seen before—the sort of fish out of water. But again, to me, it seems like you kind of handle it um, in a different way because when she does start to enter the community, she—it almost feels like she fits in better there than she fits in in London. It doesn't feel like a, a fish out of water. Again, you're kind of subverting the trope. Um, can you talk about that just a little bit?
1: i think she expected to feel like a fish out of water um i mean she's gone there without the intention of of being part of the community at all so it's it mm-hmm. comes as a surprise to her um you know to i think she's she probably got stereotypical ideas of the kind of people that she might find there um and she's very surprised by the you know by the the breadth of people that she finds and the warmth and the The fact that she does actually feel as if she fits in. I think in London, she's desperately wanted to fit in and to feel that she's found that the thing that she thought she wanted is the thing that she wanted. But I think stepping away, she's realised that perhaps something completely different, even though it isn't what she wants, is what she needs. Um, And that community, those people are so, so diverse and so unexpected. And I think the way they welcome her in just kind of makes her feel that there are other options and that there are other paths that she can take that might be more fulfilling than the one she's already chosen.
0: Cleo sees Mac as, she says, he has the innate, assured articulation every American seems to be born with. And (laughs) she sees herself as this sort of very, you know, buttoned up Brit. How do their cultural backgrounds come to bear in this strange relationship between the two of them?
1: I mean, he is very, um, very easygoing. He's very American. You know, he's from Boston, so he's you know all about Red Sox and lobster rolls and Springsteen. He is he is you know very, very much um, you know larger than life and very confident. And like most Americans, I, th- I think that's probably me coming through on the page. I think of most Americans as very articulate and fabulous teeth, and <laughs> you know, <so laughs> it's very um very different to Cleo she's very I think he comes across as opposite to her in her eyes because she's so unsettled and unsure of where she's going and he appears to be the opposite you know he knows exactly what he wants even though he hasn't got what he wants at the moment he does know exactly what he wants um or what he thinks he wants
0: So what was you know talk to us about the challenge of writing an american character i mean i most of us have probably written a character from who lives in another country than we do but um especially when you were you know locked down and you couldn't come to boston (laughs) Um, what, what was it like to try to get get the voice of mac
1: well i've never been um to boston so that was a challenge so again relying on you know resources like the internet and books and people but I'm also extremely fortunate to have an American editor um, who went through it with a fine tooth comb <laughs> and worked really closely with me to ensure that all of the the geographical details are right and the kind of you know the nuances of his speech and the the chapters that are written in it, as you said it alternates between Mac and Cleo and Mac's um, chapters are written in American English, and they are written um, in, in his voice, obviously, with everything everything that would normally be said, you know, the differences between the two, between American and English, American English and English English. Yeah. Um, you know, n- just the, the nuances of difference between the way things are spelt and the way things are said. So we've tried to differentiate between them, you know, subtly all the way through to make sure that he is very much an american man and she's obviously very british
0: how does that how does that cultural difference sort of get in the way of their being able to understand each other um
1: i think they're fine they're kind of medium in the middle um you know she introduces him to some of her britishisms you know to do with cooking and those kind of things um, but they have this this thing that they do at the end of each evening where they share three secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of them are mundane, some of them are quite deep. And I think that's kind of how they cross the cultural divide between them by sharing, you know, the things that they wouldn't necessarily normally share with with someone that they don't know very well.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you read about the, the smell and the sound of London. I mean, I would. I, I spent a lot of time in London, so it, could, it grabbed me immediately. And about how that contrasts with the the sort of sensory world that she's in on, on Salvation Island. How, as a writer, do you capture those sensory, imp- imp- sensory impressions of a place and then sort of use them to act on the reader?
1: I think the island itself, in One Night on the Island, um, Salvation Island, um, is almost a character mm. separately from Cleo and Mac. Um, you know, it has this, you know, the, the, as you say, the scent of it is this peaty kind of salty coldness to it. Um, and it, 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 um, it kind of spoke to me, I think as the, as the island, as a place that, you know, creating it, I feel as if I've walked the perimeter of that place 100 times round with mac because he's a photographer so I've kind of walked with him all around the edge and you know been on that journey and there's a hill wailing hill which is just outside the 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 large where they are which has got a boulder on the top which is where they sit which is the only point for connection for you know their phones to connect to the internet and that kind of stuff um so creating the island felt like creating i don't know kind of a sanctuary i guess Mm-hmm. Um, so my question was, sorry.
0: <laughs> well, we were talking about <laughs> sensory, the sensory writing and, um, but I think you, I think you got right on it too. And, and to, to just sort of build on that idea of there's this one place on the island where they can connect on their cell phones, you know, it strikes yeah. me, I, I've run into this problem. Sometimes I end up setting books a while back because of this problem that if you're writing about isolation, about mystery, about a lot of things, it's a it's a different ball game when your character has something in their pocket that can answer all their questions and give them all the secret information and so on and so forth. So, so um, what do you accomplish narratively by then putting them in a place where they don't have that 24 seven connection to the outside world?
1: I think it was very necessary actually that they didn't have that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, to begin with, I, I did have it that they did have the connection. Um, and taking it away made it so much richer and made the connection between them so much stronger because that, that was all they'd got was you know each other. Whereas if you've got, you know access to all of your normal trappings of your normal life, it's difficult to kind of be completely separate and away from it. Um so I think it's essential to the story that they don't have easy access, which for Mac in particular because he's a father and he's got two young boys, you know, that really does add to his his frustration and his angst, Um, which, I mean, as a parent, I mean, I'm a parent of boys about this. Well, a little bit, my boys are a bit older, Um, but being away from your children is, you know, so difficult for anyone, but for him in particular, in the position he's in and at the point of his life that he's in being in touch with his kids and being a good dad is is the kind of the touchstone of his life um so not having that easy access certainly increases the tension for him
0: um it also sort of plays into this whole idea that that although cleo ostensibly is there for professional reasons and and mac too um but she also says that she's she's on a break from her life in london she's sort of having this hiatus that sometimes we, we all wish we could have um yeah. is a little bit different than the one that was forced upon us in in, in 2020 but um how, how does the this notion of sort of being on hiatus from her normal life play into the narrative of how how cleo spends her time on the island
1: yeah i mean she's she's very stressed about the big birthday that's approaching um and I think the relationship that she has with her boss is, is quite, um, you know, her boss kind of understands more about what Cleo needs than Cleo does, I think, at the point when she sends her away. Um, and going away and being on hiatus from everything that she knows is really kind of what she needs at that point in her life. Um, she, you know, I think she's kind of reached breaking point without realising it. Um, which, you know, I think, and and the (laughs) pandemic certainly affected the way that I wrote the story and and the, you know, the experience of isolation. Um, So, yeah, I think she needed to get away and she needed to be able to stop and to think about, you know, how she built the life that she's built in London and whether it's serving her and whether it's, You know, she she learns so much about herself while she's there, particularly about things like friendship, and you know that that sometimes the friendships that we've got in our life aren't meant to be forever, and that's I think one of the big lessons that she learns.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives her. It's interesting how she reflects back on her life at London in London from the island, and it gives her sort of a perspective that she doesn't have when she's she's in the middle of it. Um, yeah. I also find that to me, I felt like there were these sort of multiple layers of irony in in Cleo's situation. So she writes this column about trying to find somebody, trying to trying to find love, um, yeah. but she can't. So she goes on a trip to be alone, um, yeah. but she can't be alone because she found somebody. <laughs> so it sort of built on itself. Yeah. Talk, talk yeah. about that,
1: the, the irony is lost on her that yeah. you
0: know,
1: yeah. done all this way to be alone and ends up, you know, in a situation that would be perfect fodder for a column.
0: Yeah. So talk about the the pull between her desire for isolation and her desire for connection, and how those two kind of sort of pull against each other.
1: I don't think, actually. When she, when she was originally, because it wasn't her choice to go to the island in, in the first place, it was her boss's idea. So she was quite resentful, I think, about the idea of going and being alone and didn't really want that experience. But then by the time she got there, she'd sort of come round to it and found, um, you know, she was ready for it. And then obviously when she gets there, she finds a community and she finds Mac and she finds all of the things she doesn't think or doesn't think that she's going there for. But actually, those are the things that keep her there. And those are the things that make the um, sabbatical that she takes there so absolutely life changing.
0: And if we, if we sort of back up our focus from that idea of the, the conflict between isolation and desire, are you really writing about how we all struggle to balance the, the internal and external lives that we have?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, absolutely. I think every, everybody is definitely on that battle, aren't they? Between you know the things that surround you and the things that you do out of duty and because of family and because of responsibility. Um, compared to the things that you would really desire to do if if you had the chance to stop and make different choices. Um, And I think that's one of the appealing things about the book as a reader, is that we'd all kind of like to step off all of our usual responsibilities for a little while and have the chance to just be without the responsibility for anyone else and without our usual, you know, ties. So I think it's a, as a reader, this kind of book kind of gives you the chance to do something while still sitting at your own kitchen table <laughs> rather than actually doing it yourself.
0: Yeah. And what, for you as a writer, what is that balance between the inner life and the outer life? Like, cause I mean, writers are, are, occupation sort of requires us to spend more time on the inner than some other occupations do. So how, how do you balance those two things in your life?
1: I mean, I'm quite a home bird anyway, so I'm quite looking. Um, you know, I'm not, um, I work from home. I've had a studio put at the bottom of the garden, um, and it's my sanctuary. So, you know, this is, for me, it's the perfect life because I'm quite content with my own company quite a lot of the time anyway so you know and then there's the you know the occasional times when you get called away to london or do something exciting and i think that little bit of you know razzle dazzle is lovely um but (laughs) i'm more of a stay at home in my pjs my happiest days are when i'm kind of you know in the office cup of tea writing you know it's it's my dream job really
0: so then you know, you talked a little bit about how how COVID and the lockdown sort of played into not only how you research the novel, but, but really the novel itself, these sort of themes of isolation. And, and it really yeah. almost feels like, especially at the beginning, it feels like these characters are in lockdown. I mean, there's a storm. They can't leave the, the cabin, yeah. you know. Um, but did did that make a big change in your life when that happened or is as a writer who works at home anyhow, is it sort of business as usual?
1: um it made a big change in that my kids were home I've got teenagers and so they were home um and I didn't expect them to need all that much help with with the teaching side of things but it turned out that they do need someone behind them all the time so <laughs> I kind of became um part-time teacher um along with Alexa who became my new best friend because she knows everything and I know nothing <laughs> she was the teaching assistant in the classroom um and obviously you know that there's the whole you know that that feeling of uncertainty and anxiety that came with it particularly with early lockdown um i found it really difficult to work to to for my brain to be settled enough you know mentally to to be calm enough to work so i did find real upheaval I, yeah i started to before i actually wrote this book i started a different book um And I did perhaps 20,000 words and got to a point where I hated it. My editor hated it. (laughs) And we both kind of said, this isn't working. And it was purely because I wasn't in the right mental headspace to be writing. And it was coming out really quite um, hard work. And I think it would have been hard work to read. So we put that on the back burner and went for something particularly more upbeat. That was the idea of this book, really, was that, you know, that it's it's purposefully escapist and it's purposefully doesn't mention the pandemic at all, even though, you know, the the pandemic probably shaped it because the whole, you know, lockdown situation is there on the page. But the pandemic isn't mentioned at all and it's not dated because I think once the pandemic, if the pandemic is ever over, the last thing anyone's going to want to read about is the pandemic. So... You know, it's kept purposefully off the page, whilst kind of being on there. Yeah.
0: The other thing I noticed in in the book, I think for for a lot of us, the pandemic sort of changed our ideas of what what home is and what home means, because you're spending so much more time there. And Mac, at one point, you know, he lives he has a, he has in a deteriorating marriage. He lives separately from his his wife in a condo, and he says, "No place feels like home right now." Yeah. How, how does the idea of home and what it is and isn't shape these two characters and their relationship to the island.
1: Well, Mac is very, when, he, when Mac first arrives on the island, he is kind of running away from home, if you like, because his home, everything that he thinks makes home home has been taken away from him. So he's, you know, he's separated from his wife and he doesn't live with his children. Um, and he has um, connections to Salvation Island through his um, family, through his ancestors. So he's he's looking, I think, for connection because he's lost his connection in Boston. He's looking for a new connection. Um, so I think going to the island for Mac is, is looking for home, um, whereas for Cleo, I don't think it is at all. She's kind of been running away from home ever since she left her family home. Um, she was happy there, she's got lovely family, but I think she's never felt quite as if she's found her place. And she didn't expect the island to be her place. So I think it completely blindsides her when she gets there and finds this place that speaks to her heart and feels, for the first time for her, like home.
0: And one of the parts of that is this this beautifully captured sense of community um, that I, I suppose in some ways is unavoidable in, a, in, a, in a, a place, an isolated island. I mean, if you couldn't get along with the people who lived there, you probably would just leave. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you went about creating that community. Because as you said, you couldn't, you couldn't travel, you couldn't go sit on an island and watch how how people act with one another. Um, and, and yet you, you created these, these great local characters. Talk, talk a little bit about that process.
1: Okay. I, I absolutely love the secondary characters. Any book that I write, the secondary characters for me, I love them more than the main characters. Mm-hmm. They're so yeah. fun and they have so much more scope. Um and I think I was conscious, I just wanted there to be a lot of variety amongst them. Um, you know, so you've got as you said, it's a small, it's a really small rural, isolated community. So there's a, a wide age range and there's um, you know, there's a wide variety of of characters and I think it needs that I think you know not making them predictable is kind of what makes them interesting. Um so you've got, you know, a, a lovely group of ladies, the knitting group. Yeah. Um you know and they're not predictable at all. You know, that Cleo expects them to be a certain kind of way and they turn out to be colourful and funny and acerbic. And I think that's what it needs is, you know, a mix of again no heroes no villains but some of them are quite testy sure. um and I, I absolutely love writing though the more testy they are the better so you know I love Delta who is um Cleo's friend on the island um but Delta's mother I love even more because she's so straight-laced mm-hmm. and so difficult but so I think you have to kind of make them lovable as well um and uh you know so I think um I think the pub on the island is probably the hub of the island. Yep. And the, the guy that runs the pub, in my head, he's Bill Nye. <laughs> 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 I always kind of cast people in my head of who they oh, are. Perfect, you know, perfect. Really yeah. Movie, um, So he's my fantasy um, Raph in, who kind of is the, the father of the island, if you like. Yep. Um, yeah, so secondary characters absolutely love them.
0: Um, Cleo. Another thing that I find is sort of almost metafictional about this is that Cleo is supposed to be on this journey of of self isolation. She's supposed to be going there to be alone, to sort of connect with herself. Um, but she writes she's writing a column about it, and she discovers that this column is now more popular than ever. That she's bringing along with her on this journey in a very real way, these thousands or tens of thousands of of readers. How does that knowledge that that her isolation is this widely shared isolation affect the way that she decides what to do and and lives her life? how How does her writing affect her 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 real life?
1: I think that's where she's very fortunate that the internet connection is so bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because she doesn't it doesn't really have a massive effect on her and the way that she you know the way that she lives on the island because it's not it's not touching her life she's not constantly able to check her phone when she's in the loo and you know do all of the things that people do in their normal lives she's very very cut off so besides you know being able to file the column she's really not staying on top of all of the social media side of things um, which is such a big part of her normal life Um, and it's very fortunate I think that she doesn't have it there.
0: You talked about the, the guy run, Bill Nye who runs the pub uh, yeah. um, <laughs> as being as being the father <laughs> of the island. I think I love that that yeah. image of him as the father of the island because as we kind of delve farther into the psyches of Cleo and Mac, we discover that the the concept of fatherhood is really important in this novel. Both Cleo having lost her father and Mac feeling you know, the tensions of how he can be a father in a, in a separated household. Um, Talk, talk a little bit about this idea of fatherhood and, and did your own experience of of fatherhood, even in, in your family as a child or in your family as a mother, um, affect the way you sort of created that, that idea in the novel?
1: Okay. I mean, I'm really fortunate. I've got kind of the best dad in the world. So um, (laughs) that's the, that's where I come at it from with regards to fatherhood. So not ever having had her dad, to me, is so poignant. And I can kind of, you know, feel that that from her at every level. And Mac Mac grew up with a dad who was quite feckless and, you know, didn't stick around and made his life really difficult. So he's on a journey to be the best dad that he can possibly be and be the absolute opposite of his own dad. Um, So they've both got quite big... Issues around either their own dad or the or Max, you know, view of himself as a father is the most important thing to him, even more so than his position as a husband or as a son. His position as a father and making sure that his sons don't experience what he experienced as a child is kind of fundamental to who he is.
0: <laughs> um- well, you mentioned before, and, and I would be remiss, I think, if I didn't if I didn't ask this question, considering um, that you already mentioned it and that it's such a big part of the novel, But you talked about how Cleo and Mac tell each other three things from their past every night before they go to bed. So some of them are, as you said, quite average, ordinary, no big secrets. Others of them are, are from the deepest parts of their soul. Um, so what are three things you would like to tell us Oh my gosh. <laughs> we, yeah, well we I didn't stand
1: on my husband's I did not stand on my husband's foot. <laughs> 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 There's one. Um, oh gosh, what else would I like to say? these things. Um, I wish I could exercise more. I think that's one one that um one that's on my New Year's resolution list. Um and what else can I tell you? Oh, uh, I'm kind of secretly hoping to script write in the new year.
0: Oh, good.
1: There you go. That's a secret.
0: (laughs) Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in, in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing?
1: Hmm. Now I often use the word and I have to go through my books and make sure I haven't used it more than twice in any book because it's so <laughs> unusual. I often use the word melancholy because um, I love it. I think just, just the sound of it, it's so, you know, lyrical, but it's quite an unusual word. So I try and keep it to a minimum.
0: What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing?
1: Mm. Oh, gosh. I'm like word shortening. So like bicky or chalky or anything like that. make me go a bit furious.
0: (laughs) Where's your favorite place to write?
1: Oh, definitely my office. Yeah, I had the office in the garden put in and it's my sanctuary.
0: Where could you never write?
1: In a busy place. I can't write in cafes or much as I'd like to. I always think it looks very glamorous, but (laughs) I have have to be on
0: my own. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: Okay. Um, probably, oh, the Oxford comma or serial comma, I think you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a big user, big fan.
0: Yeah. What's the first book you remember reading?
1: As a child, I was an Enid Blyton fan. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Famous Five or my absolute favourite was called The Naughtiest Girl in the School. Oh, which that was our was daughter's
0: favourite too. It
1: probably says more about me as a child than anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, what are you reading now what am i reading now
1: i'm reading an early copy of emily henry's next book which is called book lovers
0: okay. uh, what book would you like to have written
1: hmm. gosh i've recently read and it's coming out in march a book called impossible by um an author called sarah Lutz, um and it just It landed on my desk and the cover was interesting. It got a lightning bolt. And I just thought, I'll just read the first couple of pages and just sat back in my chair and just kept going because it just was absolutely my cup of tea.
0: What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will?
1: (laughs) I don't think I could write anything too dark or too twisty. Um, The plotting, I think, would be my downfall. I love to read them, but I'm not sure I could ever actually do one.
0: (laughs) And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: I had a reader say to me um, that reading my book had made her bad day better. Oh. And that, that is just the nicest thing you can hear, isn't it? You know, that, that's kind of why you do it.
0: This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Josie Silver, whose novel One Night on the Island is available wherever books are sold. Josie, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Inside the Writer Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Ruta Sepetis about her new novel, I Must Betray You. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.